Uh, Australian culture celebrates real men. Sportsmen, bush rangers, war heroes, adventurers, explorers. We value them, respect them. We want to be them. But what is a real man? Is it about physical size and strength? Uh, Is it about courage or achieving extraordinary tasks? Is being a real man about your ability to change a tyre or kick a football or build a house or light a campfire or climb a mountain or romance a woman or earn a high income? Uh, Or is being a real man something different? Is it about... Is it about more than appearances and skills? Uh, Consider these questions. Who is the real man? The one who swims 15 kilometres in the open ocean to win a race? Or the father who can hardly swim at all but who jumps into a huge surf to rescue his kids? Who's the real man? The one who climbs Mount Everest? Or the man who goes off year after year to a job he hates to support his family? Who's the real man? The young bodybuilder who drinks a bottle of whisky and gets into three fights on a Saturday night? Or the skinny guy with glasses who speaks up for the Asian girl being racially abused on the bus? Maybe this Father's Day our definition of what real men are needs to be more thoughtful. Maybe our criteria needs to be focused more on what's on the inside than the outside. That's certainly a theme we see in these couple of chapters of 1 Samuel. Real men. Uh, If you could read the Hebrew, and not many of us can, uh, you'd see that the word for man or men occurs 26 times in these two chapters. 60 or 70 verses, it's almost every third verse. The word for man. Uh, They seem to be making a case for defining or redefining what makes a real man. What sort of real man do you respect or want to be? Maybe uh, after spending some time in these chapters your opinion might change. So chapter 16 which we read, it picks up the action after God takes away his kingdom from Saul. Saul may be tall and masculine, he might be a man's man but he won't obey God. And so that's the end of it for God. And So you remember last week God promises back in chapter 13 that he's going to replace Saul with a man after his own heart. A man who has a God focus rather than a people focus. A man with an inner integrity rather than simply an outer impressiveness. And so as chapter 16 begins, we're looking for a man like that. God commands Samuel, stop, stop sulking about Saul. Uh, fill your horn with oil. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. You're to anoint him, uh, the one I choose. Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. Jesse brings in the sons. He begins with the eldest, uh, Eliab. uh, Verse 6, Samuel takes one look at him, makes a judgment. Surely this is him. The Lord's anointed stands here. Uh, But look at God's answer, verse 7. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In God's eyes, there's more to being a ruler than looks and physique. And, of course, we could add, there's more to being a ruler than intelligence or education or skill or achievements or wealth or possessions or connections. 
They're the criteria that people base judgments on. Uh, judgments about who is to be respected or who is to be ridiculed, who is to be valued or who is to be ignored. Uh, what God wants is a heart that is right with him. A heart that is intent on his approval rather than people's approval. A heart that's focused on living his way, reflecting his character as top priority. That's what God's after. Someone who loves what God loves. For God, that's what a real man is. And that's what he wants in a king. We should already know it. Right from the beginning of the book with Hannah's song. Do you remember all the way back in chapter 2? Samuel should know it as well. He's Hannah's son. We should remember that God doesn't care for the outward appearance. God has a habit of turning things around so that the most impressive become the least impressive. The most unimpressive get used for God's purposes. Back in chapter 2, Hannah sang, The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. She sings, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Way back then, when Hannah was pregnant or before, she, before Samuel had grown up, before there was even a thought of a king, she predicted that God would give strength to his anointed king and that human strength wouldn't count for anything. And that's just what God is going to do. Jesse is bringing in his sons one by one from the oldest and most impressive down the line Uh, but each one Samuel realises what's going on and he says the Lord has not chosen this one either. Until we get to verse 11 there's no more sons coming through the door. Uh, Samuel says is that it? Oh oh yeah there's one more says Jesse. The youngest, the runt, the least likely humanly speaking. But if we've been sensitive to to what's been going on, it should be enough to make us pay attention. And when he arrives, sure enough, God says, anoint him, he's the one. So verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Just like Hannah had predicted, God gives strength to his king, God exalts the horn of his anointed. And it's only at this point the man that we've been waiting for finally gets a name. It's David. Not a bad name. Here is the man after God's own heart. But at this stage, he seems to be only a boy. But that shouldn't bother us. Uh, Because we remember God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Uh, He's looking at the heart. God's chosen David, God's poured his spirit onto him. Uh, But in verse 14 we see by way of contrast he's taken his spirit away from Saul. Uh, We jump forward some period in time and we see how that turns out in Saul's life. He's tormented. Today we might describe it as something like a deep depression. Instead of the Holy Spirit, there's an evil spirit or a harmful spirit. There's a a footnote there to say the word could be taken either way and that perhaps gets around some of our theological difficulties with 
how God might send an evil spirit, but you know, it's, it's a harmful spirit of some description. Uh, so verse 16, his servants suggest, uh, let us search for a man who can play the harp. You know, the first psychological sort of uh, help there. Uh, great idea, says Saul, and he says, select me a man. Now, ironically, uh, it echoes God's words back in verse 1. God says to Samuel, I have selected for myself a king. God's selection ends up being Saul's selection. One of the servants says in verse 18, I've seen a son of Jesse. He's skilled on the harp, but he's also a strong hero. He's a man of war, wise of speech, a man of good looks. That's what it actually says in the Hebrew. In other words, you want a man... Have I got a man for you? And then to top it off, he says, and the Lord is with him. Now that's truer than anyone realises because we know that he has been anointed, uh, that the Spirit of the Lord is on him just as he's been taken from Saul. So Saul sends for David. David's out looking after the sheep, which doesn't sound like much of a warrior, but he comes to Saul, he enters his service, Saul is pleased with him, And whenever Saul feels the torment of the harmful spirit, David's playing would soothe him. But here's where it gets a bit confusing. Chapter 17 comes next, the story that most of us know well about the little boy, David, and the giant, Goliath. And there seems no mistaking, chapter 17, that David is a boy. Verse 33, if you sort of look down the page, King Saul says David can't go and fight because he's only a boy compared to Goliath who's been fighting since his youth. Uh, Or again in verse 42, David comes out to fight Goliath and Goliath sees that he's only a boy and he despises him. So how is it that this servant can describe David in chapter 16 as a man, a warrior in chapter 16 but he's only a boy in chapter 17? Well, one option is that the two stories are out of order, uh, that David kills Goliath first in chapter 17 and then at some later time comes into Saul's service. That would also explain a couple of the other details, like the fact that Saul seems to know without being told that David is a, a shepherd. And so if that's the case, why put 16 here? Uh, I guess it is probably to, to contrast David who has the Holy Spirit compared to Saul who, who no longer has the Spirit and, and what that looks like in his life. But I wonder if there's not a better option. And that's to do with this idea of what makes a real man. And so the servant would be speaking almost prophetically. Perhaps humanly speaking, he's just trying to talk up his chances of uh, you know, getting the he gets the bonus points for finding Saul's helper, but perhaps he's speaking in a way almost prophetically, better than he realizes. He recognizes something about the boy David that that's not seen yet in embryo form. He he sees a man. He sees a mighty warrior. He sees him the way God sees David. He sees that the Lord is with him. And so God can do anything, even with this littlest boy. He sees the makings of a man of war, perhaps, a strong hero, a man of good looks and wise speech. 
The men who are around David seem to be anything but that description. We see that as chapter 17 unfolds. Chapter 17 shows us what the real men are doing uh, or who who the actual men are. The Philistines and the Israelites are lined up across the valley, one on either side. Verse 4, Goliath is the Philistine champion. Something like three metres tall, uh, armour and weapons to match. Now if we're thinking about real men, surely this guy is it. Every day he would come out, verse 8, and he'd challenge the Israelite army. Choose a man, is what he says, and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The search is on. Uh, Israelite idols, so to speak. The search is on for a man. He repeats the taunt in verse 10. Give me a man and let us fight each other. So how do the men of Israel respond? Is there a man to be found? What's the answer? Saul and the Israelites were terrified. Back in chapter 8, what sort of king did Israel want? They wanted a king who would lead them and go before them and fight their battles. And now Saul gets the chance to do that and he's terrified. He may be head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel but he's no match for Goliath. And so verse 12, enter David. Uh, Verse 14, he's the youngest or perhaps the littlest of Jesse's sons. Uh, But from what we already know, it seems like he may be the answer to this search for a man. His father has sent him up to the battle with some supplies for his brothers. He arrives just in time for the daily action. The two sides are lining up, throwing insults at each other, just like they've done for the previous 40 days. Uh, David, verse 22, he leaves the cheese sandwiches in the supply tent and he runs off towards the battle lines. Goliath steps up, starts shouting his usual insults. And verse 24, the Israelites see this man and they all run in great fear. It's hilarious. Had they been doing that for 40 days? Every day for the last 40 days, Goliath steps up and hurls insults. They hear him and they run away again. But David the boy, what does he do? He runs to the battle. The adult soldiers run from the battle. Who's this real man? Who is the real man? David watches, he hears Goliath's challenge, he's puzzled. Verse 26, in youthful innocence, he asks the men who are standing around him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is the only one in the whole army who's concerned for God's honour. Everyone else is concerned for their own safety. And David is genuinely puzzled, I think. Sure, Goliath's big, but he's up against the living God. Surely it's no contest. His big brother hears it. He thinks David is just bragging, he's furious but Saul also hears and he summons David and David says in verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath, your servant will go and fight him. Is there a little criticism of Saul's army of men, a boy willing to stand in their place? 
Saul says, you can't do it, you're only a boy. David says, I don't see anyone else putting their hand up. Besides, verse 36, I'm used to fighting lions and bears when they chase the sheep. I kill them, that's what I'll do to this uncircumcised Philistine. The Lord will deliver me, just like he did then. Saul agrees, he doesn't have a lot of other options. Go and the Lord be with you, which we already know he is. David tries on the armour and sword but he can't move in them. He takes instead his staff, his sling, he heads down the valley towards the Philistine camp. He casually stops at the stream in the middle of the valley, perhaps in view from both armies, picks up five stones, puts them in his bag, crosses the stream, keeps walking towards Goliath. Verse 43, Goliath is waiting for him with his shield bearer in front of him. They start edging closer as well. When they see the boy David carrying a staff, Goliath curses him and says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? That's interesting. David says, I'm used to killing animals and here we've got Goliath wondering whether he's an animal. For David, it doesn't matter to him whether it's a stick or any other sort of weapon. He answers, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. A name is a far greater weapon than a sword, he says. They're bold words from a kid with a stick and a sling and a few stones. But in the end, of course, it's not about... Uh, It's not about the kid, is it? It's about the God behind the kid because God is the real weapon. His name is where the power is. Uh, And look at David's trash-talking words in verse 46. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. (laughs) Try that next time you line up at at the halfway line before a match. Uh, Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Well, the trash talking fires up Goliath. He's heard enough. He moves forward. David runs forward. (laughs) More running. He pulls out a stone, he slings it, he strikes Goliath in the forehead, the only spot uh, that could possibly do any damage. The stone sinks into his skull, he falls face down before David, uh, just like his god Dagon did before the Ark of the Covenant back in chapter 5, fell face forward, face down before the Ark. Because it's God, of course, who's guided the stone, who's brought the victory. Goliath has blasphemed God and according to God's law the punishment for blasphemy is stoning. It's quite appropriate. Verse 51, David runs again. (laughs) Runs up to the fallen body of Goliath. Here's the running, the courageous running of a real man. He pulls out Goliath's sword somehow. Uh, He kills him, cuts off his head at which point the Philistines flee and now Israel decides it's okay to attack and and finally they run. 
uh, and they chase the Philistines all the way back to Gath, Goliath's home city. And that's where we'll finish for today. We've done a, a quick couple of chapters. Uh, normally at this point in the story a, a lot of sermons will go on to talk about how we should all be like David and we should trust God and he will help us beat the giants in our lives. But that's not really what the story's about. It's not primarily about you. This is a story about God's anointed king. That's what the whole book of 1 and 2 Samuel is about. Hannah said right at the beginning, God gives strength to his anointed, to his Christ. And as we zoom in and look at the real man of David, we see in him a pale imitation of a far greater man, a far greater Messiah, his great, great, great and so on, grandson Jesus. Jesus who defeated a far scarier enemy than Goliath, who defeated Satan and sin and death and judgement and achieved for us a far greater victory. Not for one nation but a victory for all people in every age for all time. A victory that restores and reconciles all creation under Jesus' kingship. But as great as that victory is, the the world today will look at Jesus and perhaps look at us and be as unimpressed as Goliath was. They look at Jesus and they see a weak and gentle irrelevancy. Not practical, no use in a modern world, from a different era, dead, irrelevant, impotent. And they despise him, much like Goliath did. Or maybe they don't even get as far as looking at Jesus. Perhaps they stop once they get to us, the church, his body. Uh, They look at us and they see hypocrites, old-fashioned, irrelevant, distracted, divided, tired, weak and worldly, with no passion, no calling, no purpose, no sense of who we are or what we're meant to be doing and they dismiss us as Goliath did to David. But the reality is, whatever the world thinks of us or Jesus, God's champion, Jesus, is a real man. He looked unimpressive. There was nothing about him that attracted people to him physically. But he was the only real man. Jesus was the truest, manliest man who ever lived. Humanity was created in God's image, perfect, but sin scarred that image and and so each of us is only a shadow of who God created us to be. All of us except for Jesus. Jesus was the truest man who ever lived. Colossians 1.15 says, He, he alone is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. The only one who never sinned, the only one who fully measures up to God's image, the perfect earthly representative of God, the perfect standard. Think about the Jesus we meet in the Gospels, perfect love combined with perfect power. When do you ever see the two of those go together? Perfect justice combined with perfect mercy. 
When do you ever see those together? We see courageous compassion. We see consistent integrity. We see sacrificial servant leadership. In Jesus we see motivation and action that are always perfectly in line. There's never any mixed motives with Jesus. We always see a desire to please his heavenly Father alone. We always see perfect submission and obedience. He is the real man. He is our champion and we are called to honour him and worship him and follow and imitate him. So that means being a real man or a real woman is about reflecting the truest man who ever lived. It means imitating and following him. It means not being distracted by earthly appearances. It means giving up on trying to impress. Don't worry about looking weak or weird. Choose what's right, whatever it costs. Let go of fear. Let go of the need for comfort or acceptance. Let go of your rights and step up to your responsibilities. Know your champion, love him and follow him. That's what God wants from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus, help us to recognise in him what it means to be truly human, to love him and to follow him. And we pray these things for his honour and glory. Amen.